I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage we will consider together this morning from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word from Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by the name, my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the year 586 B.C., 586 years before Christ, the powerful ruler of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Jerusalem's first temple, that temple made by Solomon, and forced the exile of thousands of Judeans out of their home. So out of a population of about 120,000 that lived in Jerusalem, only about 16,000 Jews were eventually deported from their homeland. But we're told in Daniel chapter 1 that most of them were elites among their society. They were the court officials, the priesthood, the skilled craftsmen, and other wealthy, educated citizens. And so the exiles con constituted the majority of the cultural elite of the nation. It was a devastating blow to the people of God. So just imagine for us to try and get into their shoes in a sense. Imagine what it would be like for us if a foreign nation came and destroyed our church, brought it to rubble and ruins, and then sent us packing, said, go pack up your belongings and we're going to take you and move you to another place to live, away from your homeland. This was a terrible tragedy, you can imagine it. But it was not one that God had kept silent about. He had warned them about this time and time again through his prophets. But they didn't listen. They didn't change their ways. They didn't repent and believe in God, and so the Lord himself sent them into captivity in his plan and his orchestration of the events, in his providence. Years before that captivity happened, years before Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed, God gave Isaiah a vision of the tragedy 
that was coming. He told them that the Babylonian captivity was upon them soon. And it was going to be that devastating blow to their people. In the chapter just before the one we read today, chapter 48, Isaiah made it clear that this pathway of unavoidable suffering laid before them. He describes it here in our passage as a pathway through floodwaters and through fire, which are terms of extreme hardship that were in front of them. Notice in verse 2 of our passage that Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, and again, when you walk through fire. They were told that the extreme suffering was unavoidable before them, and that they were going to walk through it. Not if it was going to happen, but when it was going to happen. They were not called to insulate themselves from the heat, nor to weather the storm in some kind of shelter. No, they were called here to pass through the waters and walk through the fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, most people throughout human history either try to avoid suffering at all costs, or they try to act like the suffering they experience doesn't exist that it's just an illusion. There are two ancient Greek schools of thought that represent both of those perspectives, the Epicureans on one hand and the Stoics on the other. The Epicureans tried to maximize pleasure. They were hedonists, and they tried to avoid all suffering at all cost. Avoid pain or die trying was kind of a motto of theirs. Whereas ancient Stoics admitting that suffering was natural to life, but only that the weak-minded are truly affected or brought down by it. That if you are emotionally strong enough, then you can endure whatever suffering comes your way. Marcus Aurelius, ancient philosopher and ruler, says it this way, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. And so, with the pathway of waters and fire before them, Epicureans would say, do all that you can to change your circumstances. Get out of Dodge. Retreat from Jerusalem and its religion and go find peace elsewhere. That would be the solution of the Epicureans. On the other hand, the Stoics would say, well, you can't avoid the suffering, so do all that you can to change your mind. And when you can't change a situation, simply change yourself. Turn inward and get stronger. And as I mentioned those two options, each of you probably resonates with one of these approaches more than the other when it comes to suffering in life. But which one of these approaches to suffering fits with what Isaiah is describing here for us? Now, both are similar but neither fit perfectly. Let me try and explain. Isaiah's approach here is similar in this, that Isaiah sees suffering as a bad thing throughout the Bible. God tells us to avoid bad situations, and there's a whole book about that. The book of Proverbs is about how to follow God's wisdom and to try and therefore avoid all kinds of bad situations that would come if you follow down the wrong path of folly and make 
bad decisions in life. But sometimes suffering is unavoidable. And when it is, there is no point denying it or acting as if it is an illusion. In those moments when the waters and fires are before us, the suffering can either break us or remake us, but it all depends on the way we, re- we respond to the suffering as we walk through it. And so Isaiah's approach here to suffering is kind of like both, but here is where Isaiah's approach is like neither. The main difference is found in this. God himself promises to be with us, walking beside us through the waters and the fire. We have a companion through the waters and the fire, the Lord our God. So the key to becoming stronger through suffering is not found by running away from it, nor by turning inward to try and find strength in ourselves. The key to becoming stronger in our suffering is to know God personally as we walk through suffering and to recognize God's presence with us through suffering, which is the great promise of this passage. How is it that we will not be overwhelmed by the waters when they are rising up and about to drown us? God will be with us. How is it that we will not be consumed by the flames? God will be with us. You see, this is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. Our God accompanies us through the waters and the fire. He is there with us. And that's what God wanted to reassure the Israelites before their exile into Babylon, before they entered into that, before the flood and the furnace. He wanted them to know that he would be with them through it all and that he was personally invested in them with great affection and love for them in a commitment to his people. And friends, as we think of our own lives, there are waters and fire before each of us. Some bad things that you simply cannot avoid by following God's wisdom are in your pathway ahead of you. Others, in that sense, these trials before us are unavoidable. As was the case for Israel before their exile, we must come to know God and his promise to be with us before we go into the furnace of suffering. Because if you try to find God in the furnace itself, and not before, then it will be extremely difficult to find him there in the furnace, in the midst of your suffering, if you do not know him before going in. And so now let us consider what he says about us and and about himself in this passage so that we can truly know him and learn to walk with God through pain and suffering. Three brief points this morning. First, our relationship with the Lord. Second, the ransom for our life. And thirdly, the Redeemer with us. First, our relationship with the Lord. I want you to notice, look back at our passage in verse 1. Notice what the Lord says about his people. He created us. He formed us. And he has redeemed us. He has called us by name. In that, we find that Isaiah is moving from that which is general, he created us, to that which is very specific. He has called each of us by name in a very personal, intimate way. 
And lastly, at the end of verse 1, the Lord declares with a triumphant shout, you are mine. You are mine. This is the blessing of belonging to one who is higher and greater than ourselves. One who has the power and authority to sustain us and refine us through the waters and the fire of life. Our belonging to God is our only comfort in life and in death, as we say in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in Isaiah, God proudly declares that we are His that we belong to him as his sons and his daughters, his beloved children, that we are indeed precious in his sight. He is not ashamed to look upon us and shout to the world, these are mine. And this is remarkable because God declares this about a rebellious and sinful people. If you look back with me in the chapter just prior, chapter 42, verse 24, we read this. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? What does this mean for us? It is the good news that despite our messy past, whatever guilt and shame that still, in a sense, clings to you. Despite all of your sinful ways, God still proudly claims you are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. We find that God's grace abounds all the more to us because of our sin. Romans 5.20, Paul says that where our sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. And so, like Israel, our sins are many. Our shame is great. But like Israel of old, we belong to the same God whose mercy is more and his grace is always greater. And so, Christian, do not let your own sins or shameful past define who you are. God's grace defines who you are in Christ. If you believe in him, he is not afraid to shout from the rooftops, throughout the world, that you are his, that you belong to him. But remember as well that his grace is not cheap. It came with a cost, a high price. And that's our second point, the ransom for our life. Look at verses 3 to 4 with me. The Lord here reminds Israel that in the past, God chose to save and set Israel free at the expense of Egypt. In order to redeem Israel, what had to happen? Egypt was ruined by the plagues that God sent upon them and ultimately by the waters of judgment that fell upon Pharaoh and his pursuing army. The title at the beginning of this verse 3, I am the Lord your God, is reminiscent of the title that God uses at the introduction of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 that we read earlier in the reading of the law, where he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God 
gave Egypt as a ransom in order to redeem his people. That was the past. God was willing to let Egypt fall in judgment in order to save his people Israel. What about the future? Well, that's what we find in verse 4. In verse 4, the Lord says that he will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Commentator Alec Moiter says here that in order to deliver his people, the Lord must consign others to loss, and he is willing to make that choice. It's like a man saying to his beloved, I'm willing to pay any price in order to have you as my bride. I am willing. Whatever it costs it is to me, I'm willing to give it all for you in love. And in chapter 53, just 10, 10 chapters later, Isaiah will soon show us the price that God was willing to pay in order to redeem his people from their sins and misery. The Lord God himself would enter into the story as a man, the suffering servant, in order to lay down his own life as a ransom for many. And we read about that in Romans 5, chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life in exchange for ours. In the past, he ruined Egypt, in order to ransom his people. But Isaiah is showing us that God was willing to pay a far greater price. God was willing to face ruin himself, personally, in our own human nature, in order to ransom his people. As John says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why? Why would God commit to ransoming his people at such a high price? Well, he says it at the beginning of verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. So apart from any merits of our own, we find that the Lord our God has chosen to love and value his people as precious to him. And by his grace, he has conferred honor and dignity to his people through the person and work of Jesus. And in that, we've seen that we belong to the Lord in this intimate relationship with him at the great cost of his own sacrifice in our place. Christ in exchange for sinners. And that leads us to our last point, the Redeemer with us. At the heart of this passage, in its very center, in verse 3, we find that verse is connected to the phrase that came earlier in verse 1. That 4 at the beginning of verse 3 is connecting back to that phrase in verse 1, fear not. And so we can read it this way, fear not, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is the one who is promising to be with us through the waters and the fire. And this is the great comfort that we have as we walk through those trials, that we have a reliable companion with us. By grace, we belong to our Lord God who promises to be with us as a Savior through every trial and tribulation in life. The old promise of God that we find here in this passage became a reality when Jesus of Nazareth was conceived 
in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit of God. The Lord God himself made good on his word of promise. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And here in this world, we find that our Lord Jesus Christ, God in our own human nature, walked through the waters and the fire himself. Isaiah will soon talk about that in the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, where he speaks of Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Jesus himself, God in our human nature, walked through great trials and tribulation, suffering, pain. But here's the difference between Jesus and us. Unlike us, when Jesus went under the floodwaters of judgment and into the furnace of affliction, he was entirely alone. Entirely alone. On the cross, our Lord Jesus suffered and nobody was with him. And that's why he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in it all by himself. And why? Well, on the cross, Jesus was drowned in the judgment waters of God and consumed by the fires of God's wrath for us, instead of us, in exchange for us. Jesus went through the waters and fires of judgment that we deserve for our sins against God in order to forgive us, to redeem us, to claim us as his own. And it is because we were bought with the precious blood of Christ that we are now precious and honored in God's sight. You see, Jesus is the Lord our God, our Redeemer, and our only Savior. And what does that mean for us as we are called to walk through the waters and the fire? Well, that is our conclusion here. That there is suffering that we can't avoid, and turning inwards for strength will not do. And so we must trust that by faith in Jesus, we belong to God and that He is with us, and He will bring us all the way through to His glory. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this, If you remember with grateful amazement that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you on the cross, you can begin to sense him in your smaller furnaces with you. And when you get thrown into the furnace, you can say to yourself, this is my furnace. I am not being punished for my sins because Jesus was thrown into that ultimate fire for me. And so if he went through that greatest fire steadfastly for me, I can go through the smaller furnace steadfastly for him. Because Jesus was consumed and burned on the cross by the wrath of God for us, taking that full punishment we deserved, that enables us and strengthens us to go forward through the smaller furnaces. Because the wrath of God is no longer hanging over us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has already dealt with that. And so... There are waters and fire before us in our path. Loss is inevitable. In time, you will lose your physical strength, your health. You will lose your mental capacity. You will lose loved ones along the way. And ultimately, you yourself will pass through 
the waters of death. But fear not, because the Lord is with you. God calls you to walk through them, trusting that he will always be beside you. Remember that the key to becoming stronger through suffering is not found by running away from it, but turning rather towards the God who is with us in and through the waters and the fire, trusting that he was drowned by the waters and consumed by the fire for us with the confidence that we will triumph through them, that we are more than conquerors through all these things. He conquered all evil, sin, and death for us, and that gives us hope that he will, in the end, gather us back to himself and to his glory on the other side of all suffering. And so, do you call upon his name? Are you called by his name, as Isaiah speaks of here? Are you a Christian? Have you called upon Jesus as your one and only Savior by faith? If not, today is the day of salvation. Call upon him for the forgiveness of all your sins. Trust in him. And when you do, know that he calls you his own. He says, you are mine, both now and forevermore. Fear not, you are mine. I am with you and I will bring you back to my glory, even from death itself. Trust in him, for he is with you, dear Christian. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in the truths of this passage that you declare to us as we read from the opening, thus says the Lord. We ask, O Lord, that as we've heard your word read and explained, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us ears to hear and listen. And Lord, that you would comfort us through our various trials and afflictions and give us strength, not by turning inward, not by running away from sufferings, but instead by turning to you by faith, especially looking to Jesus Christ, the one who suffered in our place in exchange for us, and the one who calls us mine, his own, his beloved. Lord, we thank you that we belong to him, and we ask that you would make us faithful in our lives to him until the very end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.